If you got your Bibles, I have limited time and 22 verses. Here we go. No stories to start. Make one up for yourself, Danny, if you need one. But we are uh, here in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. We've been talking about a guy named Saul. He's the first king of Israel. He's freshly minted. He's coming off in the last chapter, a great victory. God's spirit came upon him. He rallied the nation to the defense of a city uh, on its eastern border called Jabesh Gilead. Um, 330,000 Israelis um, converged on that site and fought back the Ammonites, an invading, an invading force. Um, uh, they decided at the end of that to celebrate by having uh, the last of the four installations of this new King Saul. This is the biggie. Uh, they're going to a place called Gilgal. Uh, his coronation will take place there. And uh, as happens at these big, you know, governmental to-dos, uh, someone asked Samuel to say a few words, and what follows is the longest speech that we get from Sam in our Bibles. Uh, it starts out like you might think, and it ends up in places you won't expect. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 1. Samuel stands up in Gilgal at the coronation of Saul, and he says, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. Maybe he's pointing at Saul as he says this. If you're kind of new to our story, this is from a couple chapters ago where the children of Israel had come to Samuel and said, give us a king like all the other nations have. We want to be like everyone else. Now, if you were here that day, you'll remember that was not God's plan for Israel. Uh, Samuel was miffed. Uh, God was offended. But he says to Sam on that day, listen, man, Part and parcel, used to this. This is what my people do. They forget me. They reject me. They get outside of my plan for their lives. Uh, we'll work with this. I'll give them a king. But I want them to understand that this king that they shall receive will not be the king that they expect or hope for. He's going to be a king who's going to fail them. In fact, all of the kings. You can read the rest of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. They're both kind of condensed in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And you run a check. Most of the kings... Dirt bags. It's in the Hebrew. They're failures. And instead of give, 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 they take, take, take. And so here they are. First man up is Saul. He's going to reign for 40 years. He's already hit his peak. It's all downhill from here. And Sam says, Here I am. I obeyed your voice. In that all that you have said to me, and I have given you this king. Verse 2, now behold, the king walks before you. There he is, tall guy, good-looking, handsome fellow. He says, and I am old and gray, not long for this world. We're not going to see much more of Samuel in the story. A few more times he pops in. Uh, but uh, this is kind of his swan song, his goodbye speech. He says, behold, my sons are with you. Again, you've got to have been here to uh, read the story with us, but uh, last chapter, or, or in the chapter that they asked for the king, uh, we find out that uh, Samuel has been the judge of Israel, which is kind of the governor role, and he has basically asked his sons to rule in different parts of the country, and we don't know their names. All we know, they're not very good at being judges. Uh, they're uh, all about themselves. They are uh, taking bribes and and, and not bringing about true justice. Uh, so his sons will not rule in any capacity now that Saul is king. And he says, my sons that you were fear, fearing having to serve, 
They're just standing next to you now as, as fellow servants of this king. He says, I've walked before you from my youth until this day. That checks out. If you've been studying 1 Samuel with us, uh, Sam comes on the scene as the product of a prayer of a mother who had been unable to bear a child. Her name was Hannah. And Hannah uh, made a deal with God and said, I'll give my kid to you uh, at an early age to serve you in your tabernacle if you indeed bless me uh, with a child. And that's what happens in chapter 2. She dedicates Samuel at probably around the age of three or four, just after he was weaned, uh, to the service of God under Eli in the tabernacle. Eli was the high priest. And so Sam, for his whole life, however old he is, he's, he's old and gray, but for all of those years, from four years old probably on, Service to God, service to Israel. That's what he says. So this is the part that you're like, all right, these are the things you'd expect. Gave you a king. Um, uh, here he is. I've served you all of these days. But then he does something uh, that we don't expect. He, he's he's going to set up the rest of his speech by doing what I call a Sam check. Samuel does a Sam check. Look what it says in verse 3. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, that's Saul, the king that he has poured oil over, uh, whose ox have I taken? Interesting question. Uh, Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Uh, From whose hand have I taken a bribe, uh, bribe to blind my eyes with it? He says, testify against me and if you have any case of these things happening, I'll give it back to you. His point is this. I've sought as your leader, as a priest, as a prophet, and as a judge to do right by you. Uh, A little bit later in the story of of Israel, there'll be a prophet. His name's Micah. And in his writing, in chapter 6 of his book, um, he says, this is what God expects of everybody. Baseline, foundation, existence. This is what he hopes from all of us. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do these three things? First of all, justice. Be just. Be upright in your dealings. Have integrity integrity in whatever you do. Do justice. Love kindness. Be about others and their betterment. Not just about yourself and lining your own pockets and getting for you. He says, walk humbly. With your God, he gives him three things. If you want to build a life on a foundation that will be well for you, or do well for you, <laughs> do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And what Samuel is essentially saying is, I've sought those things as I've led you. Can anybody say that I've taken a cow or a donkey or a, uh, a bribe of any kind? If they can, which they can't, he's pretty sure he's got them on that, Right? But it says, if he can, I'll pay him back right here. Why? Because I've sought to do right, to do justly, walk humbly, and to live kindly in my existence. Now, he does this for a couple reasons. He's going to say something, and he he wants his authority and his veracity as a speaker uh, to be in place. He's saying this stuff, saying, you can trust me. I know the other leaders of Israel, Eli and his sons, if we remember the story, dirtbags. Uh, his own sons, dirtbags. The kings, I've already covered that, dirtbags. Eli, not a dirtbag. You can trust me in what I say. As my uh, 
Um, 30 years plus of doing this has unfolded. I've stood at uh, many memorials, many funerals, and uh, listened to families and friends talk about a deceased person. It's really uh, interesting to me, uh, the things that come up. It's not how much money they earned. It's not uh, all of their achievements in their career. It's, it's none of that. I mean, some of that, maybe. But mostly what people talk about are the character of that person, the lessons they learned from how that person chose to live. Uh, they esteem the qualities of the person they mourn. I've often asked at those services, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, as we who mourn move forward, how are we going to live our lives so that when we get to this stage and people are talking about us, they say the things that we hope that they'll say. You know what? Uh, when I uh, die, which I hope is long from now, but if it's soon, I pray that people stand up at mine and say, hey, he did justly. He lived kindly. He walked humbly with his God. I met a guy this past week who uh, uh, came to our church for the first time just recently, and uh, we've been talking in another part of the world that I inhabit, and, um, and, and you know, he found out about us and hung out. Uh, uh, he, he was talking to me about it, uh, his experience here. And he said, you know what I like about you? Which is always like, mm, I don't know, what do you like about me? Uh, but he said to me, you know what? Um, I just love that uh, when you talk, I just feel like you're speaking from your own life, from your, from your own experience. You're, you're being authentic when you're up there. And I, listen, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, if you ever give me, this is, and people after the last service were like, you're really this. I'm not looking for compliments. Please don't come up after me after we're done and say, that's, this is, are you with me? But if you were ever to compliment me, or I hope any pastor like me, the greatest compliment you could ever give to him is he was honest. Wasn't perfect, but when he was wrong, he admitted it. He tried to do his best to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with his God. He was authentic and real. Spending too much time, but that's, that's what Saul, or Samuel, I'm sorry, says about himself. Verse four, they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And so Samuel says in verse 5, well, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed, pointing again to Saul, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they all said to him, God's our witness. Saul's our witness. This is true. He's a good lawyer. For the record, he says in essence. What I hear you say, saying is, is that there's nothing in me that you can find that would dissuade you from trusting me in something that I say. And they're like, spot on, Sam. And so then he moves on with the part that maybe we weren't expecting. On this auspicious occasion, just days after a great military victory uh, with a freshly minted new king, um, Saul is going to lead Israel into a, a history lesson of their past and, and then bring them forward to the present and a current failure of their current existence. He's going to point to their future. And he's going to challenge them to be revived. Everybody heard revival? There's, go, there's one going on right now. It's in Kentucky. If you uh, haven't seen it, it's uh, on your news feeds, CNN, and everybody's covering it. They don't know what to make of it. Um, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Asbury University. As the kids there at the school uh, had chapel, they just said, we're sticking around. And people have been coming from all over our country to this place 
of uh, spiritual power and impact and watching as God works over the last two weeks in this little chapel, in this little university in Kentucky. And they're marveling at it. Wow, this is, this, it's nothing new. This is how God works. Uh, Billy Graham used to put tents up all around you know, the United States and have uh, huge crusades and revival would break out in communities. Through the 2,000 year history of the church, God over and over again has brought revival to those who know him as they've sought to return to him and repent of their sin. He's brought renewal to those who haven't met him yet. And they found faith in him and begun life with him. Samuel's going to lead a revival here at this coronation. He's going to draw people into spiritual change and repentance. He's going to do it uh, by making two stand still pleas. He's going to say, I need you to stand still and really pay attention. Uh, I was a kid, seven years old, uh, who had a hard time standing still. Can you kind of picture that? Uh, We didn't have all the letters and the medications that were tied to them, but I was all the letters. Are you with me? I had all, I was every one of them. My mom uh, uh, was constantly saying to me, Mark, stand still. Stand still. She used to send me out of the house to run around the house. This was literally how she would get me to calm down, is she would make me do laps around our house. And seven-year-old me was like, this is normal, cool. It's time to do laps. And you would come up to our house to visit our family, and seven-year-old Mark would be running around the house. Hey! (laughs) Come back around. It's good to see you. (laughs) Yeah. And they'd come in, like, you know your kids run around their house. Oh, yeah, I make them do that. Yeah, that's fine. He's, uh, mom would call it blowing the stink off. <laughs> so without Adderall, that's how we did it back then. Anyway, uh, the reason that Samuel says stand still is because most of the time in life we're not. We're moving way too fast uh, to experience revival or even realize that we need revival. We're just blowing and going. And so here in this moment, he says, I need you to stand still and understand two things. Verse 6 says, Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. He's kind of seeding the fact that he's going to give them a history lesson. Verse 7, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. The first stand still plea, stand still long enough to learn from your past. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever made a mistake. I'll wait. Is there anybody with their hand not up right now? If your hand's not up, that's a mistake. (laughs) Yeah, we all make mistakes. Everybody agree we all make mistakes? I've made a bunch. Uh, I uh, had this told to me early on in my pastoral career. The only true mistakes are the ones you learn nothing from. The only true mistakes are the mistakes that happen that don't move you forward and progress you in a direction where you're going to be better, where you're going to learn not to do that again. Don't touch the stove. If that was your mistake and you keep touching the stove, you're not learning from what's failed in your past. This is probably a far better known statement. Those uh, who fail to learn from the past are what? Doomed to repeat it. Sam's going to give Israel a history lesson. Verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt, 
And the Egyptians oppressed uh, the descendants of Jacob, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites. Uh, Then your fathers, your ancestors, cried out to the Lord in that season of of Israel's history. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. A story that every Israelite present at the coronation of Saul knew. They all knew that uh, we, we were once slaves in Egypt. And God miraculously, through the leadership of a guy named Moses and his brother Aaron, drew us out of slavery, uh, enabled us to walk across dry land through the Red Sea. Uh, even as we kind of struggled for 40 years in the wilderness, he led us into the promised land that we now inhabit and gave us victory over the inhabitants who were there before us. He walked us through the period of the judges. These are all uh, recorded for us in our Bibles. Uh, And he's led us to this point where we're about to begin the era of the kings. He's done all of this for us. And the, the formula has been the same in every situation that we've faced. We've cried out, God has heard, God has sent rescuers and delivered us, and here we are. Israel was being reminded of the lessons of their past. If you're ever in a pinch, turn to the God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look to him for what he can give. He will rescue and bring you out of your trial. Uh, That should have been enough. They should have learned from their past the things that they should do. I write emails here at our church a few weeks ago. I wrote an email about how I make coffee. I've gotten all bougie with my coffee. I grind the beans. Uh, I, uh, I do a cold brew coffee process. If you want to hear about it, I'll post it on YouTube. No, I won't, really. Uh, uh, but I, 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 under, at the behest of one of our staff mates, uh, bought this. It's not this one. It's brewing coffee in my fridge at home, but I bought this big mason jar. 64 uh, ounces of, of coffee can be made in this mason jar. And I was so excited, I, I, I started the process of making the, mason, or making the coffee in the mason jar, and I got it all set after two days of brewing to pour my first cup of coffee from this mason jar. But it's bigger than this, like three times bigger than this one. And as I was kind of cleaning some stuff at the kitchen sink that morning at like, you know, quarter to six, uh, I got my hands really wet and I went to grab the jar part of the mason jar with my little stubby fingers. And I did this. Whoop. And the mason, anybody seen like a slow-mo thing in a movie? It's like, oh, no. Because this whole thing full of coffee just flew across my kitchen, hit the edge of my countertop, and then hit the floor, my terrazzo floor. And the, the, the spray pattern of uh, uh, 64 ounces of coffee uh, hurtled across a kitchen, hitting a hard surface. It's unbelievable. I can't begin to describe it to you. The, amount, the places that I had to go underneath the bottoms of cabinets and wipe down uh, it was a mess. My wife was so gracious, she didn't yell at me or anything. Uh, and we just kind of cleaned it up. Some of you might think, well, he's done with that. No, nope, I got right on Amazon, ordered another one. I will not be defeated. <laughs> so a couple days ago, this thing came in, I made my coffee again, and I've learned from that experience what not to do. There's this really handy, on the handle of this you know, mason jar, there's a, 
uh, uh, or excuse me, on the lid of this mason jar, there's a handle, like really big handle that I should have been holding onto when I poured it originally, right? Does anybody want to guess how tightly I grip that handle now? Like if you walked into the kitchen as I'm pouring this coffee, you're like, hey, Mark, settle down. I was like, you don't understand. This could go anywhere if I'm not holding on to this. I will never not hold on to that handle with all of my might until I don't. Anybody think that on a sleepy you know, Tuesday morning, six months from now, I might forget again to hold on to that handle and just kind of squeeze that mason jar again? I could be telling you a story. A story of a repeat. Over and over in the story of Israel, uh, this is their failure. Look at the next verse. Israel forgot the Lord their God. They'd experienced his deliverance and seen him part oceans and, and lead them through battles and walls fall down. They, they had walked through all of that and still had somehow been able to just set aside those memories and fall away from their one true God. So it's interesting to see what God does. So God says, come on, guys, you need to do better. Try harder. No, he just says, okay. If that's how you want to play this, I'm going to let you lose all your fights. Look what it says in the rest of verse 9. It says this, but they forgot the Lord their God, and so God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera. He just said, here you go. Sisera, this uh, general of this army of the nation of Hazor, um, you can win. He goes on in the story, and, and we actually just read this a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to let the Philistines, it's the first time they appear in our Bibles, they show up in 1 Samuel. I'm going to let the Philistines come up the Mediterranean coast, and they're going to take you captive. And they're going to be the controlling force in the nation that I gave to you. I'll give you over to the Philistines. I'll give you over to the, the hand of Moab, which was a nation over here on the eastern side. Don't have time to tell that story. But I'll keep letting you lose. Why? Because you've forgotten to give me what I'm due. And so I'll allow you to fail. Now, Israel did their best. They fought against all of these nations. Anybody read any of those stories? When Israel goes to war without the Spirit of God as their uh, source of strength, you may remember how those fights turn out. They lose miserably. It's only when they finally realize what they've forgotten. Verse 10. And they cry out to the Lord and say, we have sinned because we have forsaken you, God. We have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. That's the male and the female versions of Canaanite fertility gods. We've worshipped other false gods. We've, we've left you. But now, we've understood our error. Please deliver us as you have before <laughs> from those who oppress us, our enemies, that we may serve you. And God said, no, you've gone too far this time. Not going to take you back. Is that in your Bibles? Some of you are like, I'm new here. I don't know. Is it? No, it's not in your Bibles. It's not God's nature. It's not his character to just say, you've gone too far. No, he's like, oh, good. That's what I was hoping you would remember when I allowed you to lose like you did to Hazor and to the Philistines and the Ammonites. So when those 
cries came out. The Lord sends, like he did when they were in, ex, in, in uh, Egypt in Exodus, he sends the rescuers. Their names in the book of Judges were Jerubbaal, which uh, means uh, he who wrestles against the Baals or the Baals. Uh, it's a nickname. It's a, a name that was given to the guy who puts Bibles in your hotel room, Gideon, one of the judges uh, spoken of in the book of Judges. God sent Jerubbaal, Gideon, uh, he sent uh, Jephthah, another judge. He sent uh, Barak, I skipped Barak, not our president, where he got his name from, another judge. And he sent Samuel, who was also a judge. He reigned in the time, he was the last judge. He sent all of these leaders as agents of his delivery for Israel. He delivered Israel out of the hand of its enemies on every side, Sam says, and you lived in safety. So things are going well. The, the, the story uh, talks about Israel's failure at times to remember, but they're turning in repentance back to God and God's delivery of them. They just had, uh, just days before the coronation that they were sitting at, this great victory as God's spirit came upon their new leader, Saul, and all these guys came and fought against Jabesh, or fought against the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. Things are going great. Feels good. Everybody's clapping, you know, at all the right times. You know, you've seen a State of the Union speech. Everybody stands up. Usually it's one side or the other. But uh, they stand up and cheer the points, right? Probably people are standing up to cheer Samuel on his points. Yeah, that's, that's what our God did when we returned to him. But now he shifts again, and he says this. And when you saw that Nahash the king, verse 12, this king of the Ammonites, this most, most re recent enemy that we defeated, when you saw him come against us, you came and said to me, like we've already talked about today. Hey, we need an earthly king to reign over us. Give us an earthly king like all the other nations. You did this when you knew that you knew that you knew that God is your king and he alone should reign over you. And a hush came over the crowd. This was their current failure. They thought they had learned the lessons and had moved forward in ways that would honor their God. They had asked for this king even though uh, God hadn't appointed him. And now uh, Samuel was one more time saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the husband who thinks that they're killing it. Fellas, testify, anybody? You've been going along, you're just thinking, man, I'm the best dad in the world, I'm the best husband in the world, I'm just crushing this. And then you go out on your Friday night date and your wife looks across the table and she's fighting back tears and saying, why don't you love me? And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm father of the year up here. I'm the best husband in the world. I got the mug to prove it. <laughs> and our sweet brides look across at us and say, you don't get it. And in folly and anger, we what? what don't I get? And she tries to explain to us the things that we don't understand. We think we're killing it, and we're really making a mess. Anybody been in that situation? I'm not just talking about spouses. Maybe you're at work, got a bad review. You're like, what? Happens. We get blinded by what we think is going on and the successes that we choose to focus on. And we miss all the ways that we're missing. Hmm. Samuel says, you guys... You forgot again. 
I've gotten better at this, but I used to miss appointments like on the regular. Like this one guy, we were in a discipleship relationship, and for whatever reason, I could just never remember to go to coffee at the time I was supposed to go to coffee with this guy. And I'd apologize, you know, but after a while, it's like the boy who cries wolf. It's like, fool me once, shame on you or shame on me. I always get that wrong. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There we go. I think I got it. So eventually the guys say, look, man, let's just not meet if you're not going to show up. If you're going to forget, let's just not. Sometimes forgetfulness is like that. We just, we know we should be somewhere doing something. We just, you know, we're sloppy and we don't do it. We, we make bad choices because we're just not standing still long enough to make a good one. Yesterday I did a wedding for a family who's, uh, the mother of the bride uh, makes old-fashioned cookies that she delivers to people. She's a huge success story. They're delicious. I'm sitting there, it's 3.30, I'm about to preach last night, and I haven't had lunch yet. Now I know the four food groups. I know what a balanced meal looks like, tastes like, but in my haste and hurry, I said, you know what, cookies are good. There's eggs, right? It's like, a, it's like a protein. You know, there's wheat. That's a vegetable. <laughs> uh, I, ate, I ate a meal of cookies yesterday for lunch. Anybody want to ask me how uh, preaching went last night? I was a little off my game. Uh, because I got sloppy and I settled for something that wasn't the best. That's what happens with us. We get sloppy. We miss appointments. We miss what's best, Right? But that's not always the case. Sometimes we willfully, willfully reject things. It's not a, a, a sloppy for forgetfulness. It's, a, it's a, um, a belligerent. I'm not gonna do that. Even though I know it's true, I'm doing it this way. Anybody been in that project with someone that you know this is how it should You should do it this way. Why don't you try this? And they're like, no! I know this will work. And they keep banging their head against the wall of success and never finding it, Right? We, uh, we took uh, uh, a roommate in last year. Uh, he's my father-in-law. He's 90 years old. He uh, um, is, is at a stage of life where not everything that he was able to do before, he's able to do now. And one of those things is riding a two-wheel bike. So we got him a three-wheeler. And I've told this story before, uh, you know, about uh, uh, you know, six months or so into us having this three-wheeler. He took it out, and he drove it all the way from our house behind Outback down there on 60 all the way to Parsons and 60 as a 90-year-old diabetic in the middle of a Florida summer. Uh, he almost made it home before he almost, uh, not almost, he did wipe out and open up the back of his head uh, and spend the afternoon in an ER. And so we had a conversation like you've had with people, you know, whether it was your kid or another friend or something like that. Hey, what have we learned from this experience? Maybe we shouldn't do that anymore, right? Uh, but we left the bike in the garage. And we leave to go to jobs. And about three months after that, my father-in-law says, you know, it'll probably be fine. And he takes the bike out around our neighborhood and he's coming down this hill towards our house. And we don't know if he just blacked out or whatever, but he went over the handlebars of this three-wheeler for the second time in three months. We spent, well, I didn't, but my wife spent the afternoon in the ER with my father-in-law. And then the conversation was like, okay, can we uh, be done with the bike now, please? And it's still in my garage, although one of the back tires now is almost warped beyond rolling. Uh, but we'll see. 
Sometimes we just have a hard time choosing to remember. We'd rather do it different. Anybody like what they want? Who likes what they want? Anybody like what they want? Yeah. Yeah, we're good at liking what we want. We're good at getting what we want, or at least doing everything we can to have what we want. But like St. Mick once said, you can't always get what you want. But sometimes you get what you need. Yeah. What God says is you shouldn't want all the time what you want. You should want what I want. And when you get outside of that, well, that's where he goes next. Things happen when you choose your own will over God's. So verse 13, I'll bring it to a close here. We're not going to get all 22 verses. Everybody settle down as you look at your watches. Now behold the king, he says, whom you have chosen. It was your idea, not God's. Whom you have asked for. There he is. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. I, I picture him pointing to Saul and Saul being like. What he says next is really interesting. Because even as he's kind of chastising a nation who chose a king for itself that God did not intend, he allows them to know that even though they've made this mistake, God wants to work with them in it. Isn't that great about our God? You and I make mistakes, and he doesn't just say, done, we're through. He says, all right, you're bad, shouldn't have done that, but I'll be the God who works together all things for the good of those who love me. I'll take your mistakes, your lemons, <laughs> and I'll make them okay. I'll make lemonade. I'll, I'll lead you back into life with me, even as you have to work with the circumstances that you've created by your bad choices. We could keep going in this. He says, I'll it wasn't my idea for you to have a king. I gave you one. He's going to teach you that, that that was a bad choice. But, but even in this scenario, I'll walk with you if you'll only do what I ask. Look what it says in verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, say it with me in the last part, it will be well. Even in circumstances that are uh, you know, off of my plan, outside of my will, despite that choice, in this new iteration, this new scenario, I will bless you and honor you if only you will do these three things. First, that you'll fear me. This is not like boogeyman. <gasps> This is reverence. If you'll only prioritize me and revere me and put me in my rightful places first in your life. Everybody say reverence. Reverence. If you'll only fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, that's obedience. Everybody say obedience. If you and I, in whatever scenario that we've created, whatever bed that we have made and now have to lie in, right? You made your bed, you got to lie in it. If we will only come to God in fear and in reverence, and we would only seek to honor him and obey him, obedience, 
He goes on and he says, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, say submission, submission, those three things. Reverence, the priority of God first. Obedience, his will, not mine. Submission, him first in all things, I follow. If only they would do that, you and the king, it will be well. This has been the standard since the garden when there was just one rule. (laughs) If you'll keep my command, not commandments, just my command, don't eat that tree. You'll have this garden and you'll flourish. If you'll have reverence and obedience and submission, all will be well. And the first human said, eh, I think we can do better. And off we went and off we've been going. The inverse of this is shared in the next verse where it says this. But if you will not obey, you won't obey the voice of the Lord and you'll rebel against the commandment of the Lord and the hand of, then know this. If you won't revere and obey and submit, then it'll be more of what you experienced in those other periods of history where you left me, forgot me, forsook me. The hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Like I said, I don't have time to teach the rest of this, but let me summarize as I close the next part of the stand still plea speech that Sam gives is uh, to stand still and see that God isn't playing around. So where Sam goes next, it says, you know, in case you wonder if I'm just kind of playing here, I'm going to have God do something uh, miraculous in front of us so that you know he's for real with this ultimatum of serving him, obeying him, revering him, submitting to him or not. I'm going to show you that he is God, that you are not. And in this season of wheat harvest, if you want to read it, in fact, please do finish the chapter. He says, in this season of wheat harvest, I'm going to pray and ask God to send a storm. And that's what happens. Uh, It says that there was thunder and rain and not like one clap and drip, drip. We're talking like torrential, like most scholars believe that it rained so hard that the wheat harvest of Israel was ruined because the rain beat down on these ripe stalks of wheat and all of the grain fell out of them and flowed out of the, the fields that they were planted in. And it was only then, in this next trial, this next trouble, this, this next realization of Israel that they said, ah, oh, what are we doing? And they experienced revival. The, the rest of his speech, Israel comes to them and says, yeah, Sam, help us. Lead us out of this. And he leads them in this beautiful um, you know, sequence of repentance and restoration and remembrance. The last verse of this text is, is probably my favorite in that little run. In verse 22, he, he reminds Israel, and he, I'll remind you one more time as you consider whether or not you need revival. The Lord will not forsake you. The Lord's not going to leave you in your mess. He'll allow you to run into some walls and to learn from, you know, hopefully learn from your mistakes. But he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll wait for you, for your return. He'll do it not for your sake, but for his great name's sake, so that he can be known as the God of grace and mercy and love. 
He'll do it because it's pleased him as the Lord to make you and I a people for himself. And so that's the question. I hope you can stand still long enough to run a check effective enough to know if you need revival in your life. You don't have to go to Kentucky. Go ahead if you want. I'd like to see it. But you can experience the restoration work of God right here, right now. If you only pause, submit, revere, obey. So we're going to close like this. We're going to sing that song we sang as we were closing out our time of singing together. Will you please stand with me? And we're just going to lift up our hallelujah and say to our God one more time, forgive me for when I've forgotten. Be first in my life. Let's sing.